0: Now this evening, what I want to do is to encourage each and every true follower uh, of Christ here to become obsessed, to become obsessed with our great and amazing future that we have in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all human beings, by default, uh, are heading to suffer everlasting punishment at the hands of God because of our rebellion against Him. But the good news is that God forgives all who truly repent of their sin and surrender their life to God based on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful news. Him 666 reminded us of that, that Christ, grace upon grace has been given beyond degree. You know, God doesn't just forgive us in Jesus. He gives us a brand new life, a life with a great future. A great future, far greater than our small minds can think or imagine. A great future. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That if you're trusting in Jesus, God has given you a wonderful future beyond what your mind can imagine. Well, this, this evening, I, I want to encourage you to believe in that. And I want you, not only just believe it, but to be changed by that truth. And I want to do that by just taking a glimpse into some of the blessings that God has given us in Jesus Christ. A glimpse, you might say, of the future that we have with Jesus. To do this, I want us to look at that passage we read, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. Now, a bit of context here, of course, is that the early church at Corinth, I had given the Apostle Paul the biggest pastoral headache of his ministry. In fact, I should let you in on a secret that whenever I get discouraged, the first book I run to is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, particularly to 6. As a pastor, there's just no other, in my own view, a book that... And I think that's true for every believer, I think. If you're discouraged, read 2 Corinthians. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. You know, the, 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 as I said, the church at Corinth had given Paul the biggest pastoral edict of his ministry. He loved the Corinthian church. He loves the Philippian church as well. Paul has a lot of love for the churches. But he loved his church, I think, in an extraordinary way. Because his love for them was repaid with not with love in return, but with character assassination. Slander of Paul's character. Division, false teaching, idolatry, sexual perversion, all of that was happening at Corinth. And so when we think of the church at Corinth and we think of Paul's ministry there, it's quite obvious that Paul had his work cut out. And he wrote Second Corinthians as a follow-up, actually, to previous letters. We think this is the third letter, actually, to Corinth. And previous letters and visits that he had met there. And in particular, in this letter, Paul is pouring out his heart to them. He wants them to know what makes Paul tick. What makes Paul persevere with them? What keeps Paul going in ministry when he has so much challenges? Well, this letter answers that when you read it. And throughout this letter, Paul is so open about just how much he has suffered. Take, for example, the passage we um, we didn't even read Second Corinthians chapter four, verse eight to nine. Paul says this there: "We are afflicted in every way. Imagine that, afflicted in every way, but not crushed; perplexed, but not driven to despair; persecuted, he has suffered that, but not forsaken; struck down, but not destroyed." And it just goes on actually as you read. Suffering after suffering is gone through, and as we read on, we see that what is keeping Paul going in the middle of such affliction is that he believes his future glory in Christ weighs heavier than his present suffering. That's what's keeping him going. Second Corinthians, chapter 4, which we read, summarizes that, doesn't it? Let's just remind us of it again. Chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How? Well, because this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are sin, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, Paul is saying to his readers, including us, I am confident that I have a great future, a great eternal future. This is what I'm living for, this is what I'm pastoring for, this is what I'm laboring for, this is what I'm suffering. It is for this future. I'm living for this. And this is the key for your life as well. You must live for this great eternal future. You must let the future you have in Christ dominate everything you do. Well, the great eternal future is spelled out for us in detail in the verses that then follows. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. This is what I want us to look at uh, this evening. Three truths for us. Paul teaches us here about our great eternal future in God. The first truth is this. It's just simply this. We have a great future in Christ. We have a great future in Christ. Not out of Christ. In Christ. Notice Paul starts chapter 5 with a shocking statement. He says death is not the last word. On our humanity. One day there will be a death of death because of Christ. Look at this one. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I've never uh, gone camping uh, it's not my thing, right? Uh, people always tell me, "Come into some camping? I'm like, I'm not even into that. Uh, please organize. Uh, I'll stay in the hotel if you want to do church camping. <laughs> I'm not a camping person, right? But my daughter clearly seems to maybe think about camping. She sees it on television. Because she seems to have a tent in her room, right? And sometimes what she does is she sets up this tent, you see, and the bed is there, but she decides to sleep in this tent. This is quite interesting. And in fact, when we first bought it, she kept sleeping in it all the time. So I'll tried with you and say, what's going on here? Why? I'm not happy she's sleeping in this thing. There's a bed there. Uh, and in fact, if a visitor had wandered into, into the man's, I'm sure they would have thought, if they had come this weekend, they would have thought we were planning to join Extinction Rebellion or something. Thankfully, um, after a few days, uh, what we did, what we noticed was that in the middle of the night, sometimes she would get up from there and then she would go back to her bed, right? It was more comfortable being in the bed than being in the tent. And so we we see her use it now just occasionally. Boy here, notice in verse 1, he likens the body to a tent. He says our bodies, these bodies we have, which we spend so much money on and uh, try to decorate and make up and everything else, actually, our bodies are not permanent. They are not our permanent home. Uh, the, The body is just a garment of the soul, right? Our bodies are not permanent home because, frankly, in this fallen world, our bodies are actually uncomfortable to live in. Since sin entered the world, our human bodies have become subject to suffering subject to death, they are subject to the possibility of rotting away. But the good news is that if our human tent is taken down by death, God has prepared for us a new glorified human body for all who are in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Look at this one and two again. He makes this point. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with human with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Notice here that Paul says, if, right? Because death is not inevitable for us. If you are in Jesus, you are not waiting for your death. What are you waiting for? You are waiting for the physical appearance of Christ. But if we die before Christ appears, says Paul, it's not a big deal because we know we won't live as disembodied spirits forever. We will rise again, says Paul. And he has made that point, hasn't he? Particularly uh, in, in verse 14 there. Notice there, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, 14, he says this. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, who also do what? Raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now, we know Paul in chapter 5, verse 1, is talking about the day of resurrection, isn't it? There's a day of resurrection coming. We know that. Why do we know that? Well, not only because of that area reference, but also because of what he says in verse 4. Go back to chapter 5, verse 4. Look down there. He says, For while we are still in this tent, says Paul, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I don't know if that quote is familiar to you, but it should be because it is from Isaiah 25, verse 8. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, it speaks of pain and death being swallowed up in Christ. And in fact, that verse is, is so one of Paul's favorite because he quotes it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, Verse 51 to 55, I'll just read that uh, for you. It's uh, it's an important passage. We sometimes read it uh, at Easter time. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Uh, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, says Paul. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, says Paul. Death is ugly because death cuts off our human spirit from our human body. In the words of Paul, death unclothes our human spirits. It leaves us naked. But we don't have to worry that we'll live in a disembodied state forever. When we die, we are unclothed of our body. But we don't have to worry about that. Because Paul is saying God will raise us from death physically when our Lord Jesus Christ appears. There will come a time when we will be joined to our bodies again, transformed bodies, but we will be feather clothed in the future, Paul is saying. There's a time of resurrection coming. Now, here's the thing. Now, to be clear, the Bible teaches that all human beings will be raised from death physically. Everyone. That's the theology of, of the second resurrection. All of us will be raised from death physically. And we'll be raised to face the judgment seat of Christ. That's Daniel 12, verse 2. What Paul is saying here is that those in Christ will be raised with a new glorified body. We will have a divinely engineered, heavenly upgrade, we might say. A beautiful, eternal body created by God. With no sinful human fingerprints on it, we shall be like Christ in His glorified humanity. That's the future. First John chapter three, verse two says it, doesn't it? "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, which our Brother Fred, I'm sure, will take us through, says this. The Lord Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of God that enables him to even, even to subject all things to himself. In other words, a time is coming when God will give us a new body, right? And your new body will come with a new holy character like the Lord Jesus Christ. As I like to say, you think like Christ on that great day. You feel like Christ. You love like Christ. You talk like Christ. You truly enjoy life like the, Lord, the glorified Christ. And Christ, of course, will welcome us into the new heavens the new earth, where his righteousness dwells. And we will live forever with him in this new world. A world of no sin. No pain. No death. No more suffering. As I like to say, no more vaccination suddenly. Right? All the former things, all the former things will pass away. Because Christ is coming to make all things new. And this is not wishful thinking. This is the key point here in this passage. This is not wishful thinking. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5 is that God has already given us this future. Don't miss that. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1. For we know, Paul says, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Notice the present tense. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, Paul says. What is Paul talking about here? Well, what Paul is talking about here is called integrated eschatology. That's a technical term, integrated eschatology. The now and not yet, right? The kingdom of God is already here now with us. Christ is the kingdom of God appearing in person. Remember when Christ comes in Mark, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? So Christ has come. Christ is the kingdom of God appearing in person. Is our God dressed in the rags of human flesh. If you like, in Christ, heaven has come to earth. And as elect children of God in Christ, we share in the blessings of of Christ through our eternal union with Christ you know when we became born again when you became born again the story of Christ became your story when Christ died you died we've been looking at that in Colossians when Christ rose from death you rose from death when Christ ascended into heaven, you ascended into heaven. When Christ sat at the right hand of God, you sat there with him. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 to 4 makes that point. And when Christ comes, beloved, it will be your second coming. The point is, we share all his blessings, including his glorified body. inaugurated eschatology, this is the now element. But there is also the not yet although we have the the gift of this new glorified body in Christ, we have not put put it on yet. It doesn't look like this. I can tell you. It doesn't look like this. It is still in our heavenly wardrobe. Our spirit is in union with Christ, but the body isn't yet part of us yet. It's still in our heavenly wardrobe. We will wear our new eternal body when Christ appears. That's what Paul said. And we know it will happen because what, how do we know it's going to happen? Because God has already given Himself to us as our guarantee. Look at verse five. That's what verse five is getting at. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul is saying God the Holy Spirit lives in us as a divine deposit of our eternal future. God the Holy Spirit is keeping us, changing our inner life. He's the one transforming us, making us to become more and more like Christ. And Paul has already made this point, hasn't he? In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, uh, which if you flick back, you see he says this. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, he says this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the lord of glory are being what transformed into the same image the image of who the image of the lord jesus christ the perfect man in the same image from one degree of glory to another for what this isn't our doing this comes from the lord who is the spirit The point is that our inner transformation is taking place now, you see, in Christ. The Spirit is at work, transforming us, making us ready for that glorious final transformation, right? And because that inner transformation will finish when Christ appears. That's what Paul is saying. And because we are currently being, and this is important, because we are currently being transformed, you see, what is happening is that we are now groaning We are now groaning for what? We are groaning for our new bodies. Right? There is a new heavenly longing inside every true believer. Because you see, the spirit is connected to Christ. We are in union with him. But we haven't put on that body. We are aware that body exists. And so we are now groaning for that body. Our new redeemed heart now wants to be joined. It longs for our physical bodies to be made new. That's why... Paul is getting at here. Look at verse twenty-four. he says, For in this tent we groan, he says, in these bodies we groan. We are longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, this transformed body. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Because while we are still in these bodies, in this tent, we groan. Being burdened. Not that we will die, we will be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed, so that what is more maybe swallowed up. I want you to imagine for a minute a woman who has just got married. Right? She's just got married. But her new house is not yet ready. So at the moment she's living her home with her parents. Right? She's married. Her home is not ready and she's living at home with her parents. So her husband is not with her. She's longing to move in with her husband. Not because her parents are terrible. Right? No. But she wants something better. She's been married now. She wants to be with her new husband. There's something missing now. And so she's longing. Paul is saying this is the groaning that all true believers have. It's not a groaning of despair here. We're not groaning. Life is difficult, but that's not the reason we are groaning. It's not because we've had enough of life, boys say. No, our groaning is positive. It's a positive groan. There is an intense longing in us for our whole humanity to be transformed, you see, because we're in between worlds now. The spirit joined to Christ. The body isn't yet there. And so we are in between worlds. We are groaning to to be fully transformed, to put on a new glorified body, for our characters to be made perfect, like our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there are moments when our longing grows cold, right? Because of sin and suffering. But even then, if you are truly converted, there is still a longing. For that great eternal future. As you sit here today. Let me ask you. Are you not tired of sinning every day? Is it just me? Are you not tired of sinning every day? Are you, did you not often feel the frustration. That God loves you. And yet you doubt him in so many ways. Do you not feel frustrated. That the truths of the gospel are so wonderful. But they just sometimes don't excite you. As they should. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. You hate letting Christ down too often. And it, it, for me, I can be honest, it brings me to tears when I think of what I should be and where I am. When I think of the glory of what Christ has accomplished and where I am. My lack of appreciation of him. The interesting thing is, boys is saying, <laughs> that's why I love this passage, Boy is saying right there, Chola, right there is your experiential proof. Your groaning is proof of your sonship. You are longing because you have a great eternity in Christ. It's not because you don't know him. You feel incomplete. You long to be better. You long to live for him more and more. And you are saddened that you're failures. Why? Because that, your groaning, is proof of your sonship. And you know, as I think about this, you and I need to hold on to this precious truth more than ever before. Because, you know, we are living in a society that believes the best life is now. We saw this from how the nation responded to COVID-19, isn't it? As I think about COVID now, it seems like a distant dream. But nightmare. Why were people so willing to sacrifice all their basic liberties to simply stay alive? You might say it was a moment of madness. I'm not sure. I think it's because this society, more than any other society in the past in the UK, only this generation could have done it. And I think that's because... Many people today have no hope beyond the grave. No hope beyond the grave. They only live for now. And our society, now we must understand, has moved on. And it's constantly tempting us now to, 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 to swim in its sea of hopelessness. The world is saying, as Banahola likes to say, Yolo, you know, like it reminds us of that wonderful phrase. Um, you only live once, the world says, isn't it? Yolo, right? So the word says, focus on your health. Focus on your family. Do what pleases you. Focus on your job, on your Netflix, on whatever, right? Do not worry about anything because this is the only life you've got. The poor is saying to us, beloved, that's not you in Christ. This worldly pack-it-all-in mentality of the world is nothing more, listen to me, nothing more than decorating a tent. It's like what my daughter does. I look at it and I'm thinking, why are you doing that? It's just a tent. you know, take it down. But we do that with our lives. We are decorating a tent. It's childish for us to live like that, says Paul. You have a wonderful life in Christ. With a great future in which sin, suffering, death, hell, and Satan have already been defeated. You already have a great future. Everything that threatens you, everything that is ungodly, destructive, dangerous, will come to an end, says Paul. Yes, your life at the moment feels unpredictable, it feels confusing, it feels calamitous, we might even say, but what you need is not your law, right? What you need is to hold on to this great, eternal future in Christ. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, Paul is saying to us. Do not become sidetracked by the passing things of this world, says Paul to us. Hold on to your great, eternal future. This is what will give you actually the peace and comfort you need as you grapple with the reality of a broken world. Do that because, well, we have a great future in Christ already. In Christ. But there's a second reason because we have a great future with Christ. And that's the second truth we learn here. The first truth is that we have a great future. In Christ. And we groan for it. The second wonderful truth is that we have a great future with Christ himself. It's a future with him. We long to experience our great eternal future in Christ because we long. Why do we long? What do we long for most? Every true believer longs to be in the physical and permanent presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 to verse 7 then. Paul says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Paul says, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. Look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, says Paul. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, God the Holy Spirit enables us to follow Christ by faith. We have no problem walking by faith, he says. Listen to me carefully. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in in the Scriptures, I believe. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to follow Christ by faith. We have no problem walking by faith, says Paul. Paul. But we long to enjoy the physical presence of our precious Lord Jesus. We long for our faith to become sight. That's what Paul is saying. I said this is one of the most misunderstood passages. Why do I say that? Because we sometimes quote verse 7 as an encouragement to walk by faith. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not really using it like that here. He's looking at faith as something less than ideal. Paul does not want to walk by faith. He wants to walk by sight. He wants to be in the glorious physical presence of the Lord Jesus. He wants for his faith to become sight. And he prefers eternity now with Christ through the door of death without his body than continue waiting in his body for Christ to come. I'm sure Brother Frederick will revisit this truth as it takes us through Philippians, but look at verse eight. Yes, we are of good courage, and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see, the ideal scenario for Paul is to appear while Christ for Paul is for Christ to appear while Paul is alive. Paul is not pro death, because death means. Why does Paul not like death? Death means being cut off from our human body. Paul doesn't like that. He doesn't want to live in heaven with a disembodied spirit, we might even say. But given a choice between being in the presence of Christ, in heaven now, without our bodies, or keep waiting for Christ to appear, is a no-brainer for Paul. It's a no-brainer for him. Paul prefers a disembodied state with Christ any day because what makes our eternal future great is being with Christ in his glorious presence. When we die as true followers of Christ, we are immediately with Christ, absent in body, present with Christ. And this truth should fill our hearts with love for Christ. It should fill our hearts with joy because of who Christ is, isn't it? Because Christ is God the Son. He is holy, unchanging, everlasting, self-sufficient, self existence He is infinite in glory, infinite in power, infinite in grace, infinite in love, infinite in wisdom and goodness. is our God. And then look at us. Look at you. We are sinners. Fragile. Weak. Often without joy. We are constantly drowning in the vomit of our sins. We are destined for death. Yet yeah, Christ loves us. He calls us His very own. He not only died for us, He gave us new life by God the Holy Spirit. And, and He stands ready to welcome us into His eternal presence. Christ is waiting, as I like to say, on tenterhooks, isn't it? For us to spend eternity with Him. How do I know that? How can I make such a claim that Christ is waiting on 10 Well, because of his prayer on earth. His prayer on earth. was that? John 17, verse 24. I think we even read this, perhaps. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, this is Christ's desire, may be with me where I am and to see my glory that you have given me Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is your desire of Christ. John 17 verse 24. Christ desires. What does Christ wish for most at this very moment? It's that you should be where he is. You should see his glory. Our Lord Jesus willingly bled and died on the cross to take on himself the very holy wrath of God that you and I deserve. Why? Why? Wow. so that you can see his glory in life or death. That's the hymn, isn't it? Abide with me. In life or death, so you could see his glory. And can I just say, based on John 4, 17, verse 24, though we don't know a lot about what it shall be like in heaven, we know for sure we shall see the beauty of Christ. And beloved, what a joy it would be to see the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Oh, beloved, to wonder at him, the one who is both God and man. Finitude sits with infinity. Two eternal, two separate natures, as it were, sitting in perfect unity. What would it be like to feast on perfection? To feast our eyes on Jesus? The one in whom eternity shares home with the temporal. Eternal glory exists with the finitude of our humanity. and The God-man himself. Christ our Savior. The Lord of the elect. Our shepherd, our brother, our prophet, our priest, our king. Our loving and never-failing friend. The only reason I'm even speaking this evening. Christ is our joy with our end. He's the only one who matters. What will it be like? Him whom we have longed for, sought to look at. Well, beloved, pray that this evening, if you take away anything from this, that Christ will deepen your longing to be with him. Because nothing matters in this world except being with Christ. And pray that Christ will give you a new boldness to live for him. Because this is what, it's what happened to Paul. Look at verse 6. How is thinking about being with Christ, how did he change Paul? How should he change us? Look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. Courage to live for God. In face of danger. Courage to carry on. Courage to press in against sin. Courage to keep preaching Christ. Look at this, said. Yes, we are of good courage. Courage in face of death itself. You know, some of you have heard me tell the story of the martyr John Bradford, condemned by the King of England, isn't it? 1555. Why is he condemned? He's preaching the true gospel. And then just before his execution, what happens is, this, is that the prisoner keeper's wife, they come to bring the news to John Bradford. She says to him, doesn't she? Tomorrow, Master John, you will be bent at the stake. The woman says to John. John Bradford says to her, I thank God for it. He says, may the Lord make me worthy. And so the next day, they lead him through the crowds for his death there. Right? You can visit it somewhere in London. A young man, John Leaf, has been chosen, as it were, to be burnt alive with John Bradford. Because he also has been standing firm on the truth of the gospel. And so they bound, both men are bound together, they? And they are led there. And the two Johns now are standing now, ready to be bent alive. And then Job Bradford turns to John Leif just before the fire is lit. He says to him, Be of good comfort, brother. Be of good comfort. For we shall have a merry supper with the Lord Jesus this very night. And at that moment, the sheriff lights the fire and those two men, they embrace the flames because they believe that absent in body is to be present with Christ. They believe the Bible, you see. The Bible is real to them. They read it, they obey it. It's that simple for these men. And they die for believing in the scriptures. They really believe they have a great future with Christ. And as I think about the martyrdom of the two Johns, my mind is immediately drawn to that wonderful passage that John Bradford wrote at the end, just before he died, <coughs> he said this, Dearly beloved, remember that you are not of this world, that Satan is not your captain, is not, that your joy and paradise are not here. That your companions are not the multitudes of sinners out there. Even in here. But you are of another world, John Bradford says. The Lord Jesus Christ is your captain. Your joy is in heaven. Your companions are the fathers, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, and dear saints of God who follow the Lamb wherever he goes what he says. John Bradford, like Paul, in his life, reminds us that living boldly for Christ in these times requires us, beloved. To live faithful in these times requires us to be so clear about our future, to have our future so clear before us, to be sure that we have a great eternal future in Christ and with Christ. To have the Messiah so fixed in our minds, in his glory, he's the one we're going to see. He's the one we are living for. He's the one driving everything. That's the only way to live in this world. That's how we have joy in the mad world. We must live boldly for Christ because we have a great future with him. And we must keep that future with him, front and center. There's one more final thing, though. One final lesson. We have a great future in Christ. We have a great future with Christ. And finally, and I'll try and be quick on this one. We have a great future for Christ. It's for him. We live for him. It is all about him. It's not about us, beloved. It's about him. You know, Paul in this passage gives us two motivations for living with Christ. Verse 1 and 8. The first motivation is that it's an internal motivation. We might call it, uh, behavioral economists call it intrinsic motivation. It's something internal. What is that intrinsic motivation? The Holy Spirit lives in us, it's changing us. We live for Christ. Why do you live for Christ? It's not you who do it, it's the Holy Spirit is changing. And what he's done is he's given you this longing, you see, this gap I was talking about. You groan, you cry out the Spirit to change you more and more and more. That's the intrinsic motivation. Driven by the Spirit. Verse 1 to verse 8. Now, verse 9 to 10 is what we might say an external motivation or extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic, extrinsic, you might say, motivation, right? It's outside of us. We must live for Christ because Christ is coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And He's coming not just to judge sinners, He's coming to judge everyone, including His people. And these people are in view here in verse 9. They're included. Look at verse 9 to 10. And this uh, our final verse there, verse 10. Now, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, Paul here is not spelling out for us a full theology of judgment day. We need a sermon on judgment day, but we're not going to find it just immediately on this. We'll come back to that some other time. His point here is that our future with Christ is not an excuse for laziness. Some of us would have wanted Paul to have ended on verse (laughs) 8. But he's carried on because he wants to make this point. Just because you are in Christ doesn't mean you should be lazy now. Quite the opposite. Because you have a great future in Christ and with Christ, you must now live that future for Christ. When Christ appears, our entire life will be laid bare before him. That is the original meaning of the word appear here. In the Greek, it's being laid bare. We are already appearing, each one of you are right now in the presence of Christ. We are already appearing right now in the presence of Christ. Nothing is hidden from him who sees all things. But there shall be a different appearance on that day. It will be a day in which everything you think, everything you do is being recorded. And then on that day, a full report of your life will be read out before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The point here, simply quickly, is that for those who are not trusting in Christ, the day of judgment will continue with their eternal punishment in hell, a life of endless conscious torment. But we know that for those in Christ, God the Holy Spirit, remember, is our guarantee, is our guarantee for that day of judgment. Now we know that day of judgment will not be a day of condemnation. How do we know? Because of Romans 8, this one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that we stand before Christ, not dressed in our goodness. We will stand in Christ, dressed in our new super-duper bodies already. Transformed. You've got to get the sequence of these things correct. Christ comes, we're transformed, then we appear before him. Dressed in super-duper bodies. Transformed with a perfect character like his. That's how we appear. But there's still judgment, isn't there? Why? Because it will be a time for our work to be weighed before God for its worth. The work which stands the perfect examination of Christ shall be rewarded. Any worthless work shall suffer loss without losing our salvation. Therefore, knowing this, says Paul, let us be obsessed with living for Christ. Let us live as people with a great future in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or bad. And so then, as I come to an end, I ask you simply this. Imagine how your life and how this church would be like just at the end of this year if this truth we've been been thinking about, this truth really shaped us. That we have a great future in Christ, with Christ and for Christ. How would your life look like? How would your life look like as a father, as a husband? How would your marriage look like? How would the way you parent look like? Bring your answers to brother, friend, uh, Bible study time. But ponder them before then. I think the way it would look like we so different, beloved, starting tonight. I think we would sacrifice our time, our energy, our money to labor alongside our Lord to share him to the world. So that more sinners would come to share in this great future. People we love in our lives. We want them to have this great future. I think we would grow in nurturing, cherishing, and treasuring one another because we know that each one of us who are truly in Christ are not just in Christ. They are with Christ and they are living for Christ. I think we would grow to forgive one another. We would labor not to take any offenses because we know that our others treat us in this tent. Well is far outweighed by the glory that awaits us. We would grow to look past our differences in age, in social background, income, all kinds of differences. Why? Because it is not the most real thing about us. The most real thing about us is that we have a great future together in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. And that is what matters about us as believers. I think if we believe this great, that we have this great future in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ, I think those of us who are teaching and discipling others would, would talk about it often more. It would be on our lips. Those leading us in various areas of the church, men, women, Sunday school, youth, and whatever, music, and every single thing, They would persevere like Paul in face of tiredness, fruitlessness, sufferings, disappointments that ministry inevitably brings. Why? Because of this great future. I think if we believed in this great future, if you just believed this future, your prayer life would be transformed this coming week. Completely transformed. You start praying now with a new awareness. That right now, Christ is already providing for us. And he is eagerly waiting for us in heaven. Paul says, this truth, beloved. And I love this passage because this passage encourages me. Because Paul is saying, this is what got him up in the morning. And so let us ask God to to make us biblically obsessed with our great eternal future. And let us pray earnestly as a church that... As the word of God is preached, it's taught on Sundays. On Wednesdays, it will draw us, keep drawing us back to our great future. We need more than just one sermon. Yes, admittedly, we're beyond what we'd normally have it in the evening, a bit longer than normal. But you might say, we always do that. But the point is, we need it more, don't we? We need to be reminded of these truths more. And you must therefore pray for those preaching to do just that. For those teaching us on Wednesdays to do that. We want to pray that we come to love our future. You must love the future because you spend the rest of your life there. The most of your life there. And so let us grow in thanking God that indeed we have a great eternal future. In Christ, with Christ and for Christ. And Let us cry out to God to help us focus on it. Oh, our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our great future in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. We thank you for all that you are to us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you have prepared for us. And we pray that you would excite us, renew us, refresh us, help us to look to that great future with renewed hope, renewed understanding. And yes, renewed excitement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.